each year, I'm going to add to this story. Little by little, I'm going to keep you updated from my journey from diagnosis to transplant to treatment to helping eliminate hepatitis C. It was a hot summer day in the July of 1999. Y2K has the, was the biggest concern on anyone's mind, but I was 12. My concerns lay in how much pizza I could get from the pizza party coming up that Friday. I was in tennis camp, and while I wasn't the great at, greatest at tennis, I was great at eating pizza. It was only a few days away, and <clears throat> sorry, it was still a few days away, but like many 12-year-olds, I'd like to drink Gatorade and sodas in between the, the class sessions. But when my dad picked me up that day, I had little clue about how much our lives would change from such a small series of events. Upon arriving home, I rushed to the bathroom. The color was unusual a dark iced tea colored urine. Alarmed, I called my dad over. Upon his inspection, we decided to visit the doctor. A visit to the doctor was in order. After that point, the pizza party seemed a lot further away. When my doctor brought my family in, he wasn't sure what he was looking at. The blood tests were inconclusive. So he explained a biopsy would help find the culprit. I was 12. It was 1999. Biopsy was the standard still. And I was more excited that this Saturday I would get to watch more than my allocated 30 minutes of cartoons. They decided to biopsy my liver, spleen and kidney because they weren't really sure where the internal bleeding was coming from. And my platelets were fine. Although I had no idea what was happening. I was more focused on the McDonald's at the entrance of the hospital and the potential for chicken nuggets. That photo in there is me, age eight, with my brother, age six, clearly uh, being eaten by a shark. My follow-up appointment in, in September made all the chicken nuggets, pizza parties, and cartoons entirely irrelevant. The doctor explained to me and my family that I had hepatitis C, which is unusual for a 12-year-old. So they tested the rest of my family. The doctor had explained that because of the, how the disease progresses, that I had likely had it since birth, and that by 30, I would likely need a liver transplant or die. I'm glad that he was serious in his explanation and didn't hold back any information. At the time, there was no cure for hep C, and there was a sliver of hope, though, through a, a life-altering treatment. When my family's test came back, we were relieved when my father and brother tested negative for hep C, but he had confirmed the doctor's suspicion that my mom was the source. And we had, as we had the same strain of HCV, my mom was devastated. I didn't understand how to feel. I knew that I was 12 and that I was potentially already at the midpoint of my life. So my goals and dreams faded. While there was no cure in 1999, there was a treatment with less than 30% effectiveness success rate. The treatment required a year of thrice weekly injections and a series of pills, non-pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And when she took them, my mom began acting almost bipolar in her characteristics. It was hard to understand what she was going through for any of us, but interferon essentially makes you feel like your worst flu a dozen times over. And ribavirin can encourage emotional swings, skin issues, and both enhance fatigue. My mom made it through nearly 10 months before the treatment failed her. 
It took years for my family to recover, but there wasn't much time for that. She found a new job and I entered high school. My dad made an agreement with the school to prevent anything that they may do. They would pull me out of all sports and sports teams, and I would be barred from joining, which meant that leaving tennis, swimming, wrestling, basketball behind. I didn't know how to talk to others about my hep C, so I freely explained my circumstance to everyone I knew. I didn't know that faculty and parents would react so negatively to something which could affect them in no way except their own misunderstandings and fear. Myself and some childhood friends at a family fun center at age 12. Another picture. I was lucky in a way. 2002 happened to be a year where a lot more people learned about hepatitis C. Mostly through gossip and rumors regarding Pamela Anderson and her former relationship with Tommy Lee. She was infected through a tattoo needle. Although her status as a sex symbol meant that kids my age assumed it was a sexually transmitted disease slash infection. By then I realized I should be more selective with whom I share my status. My mom was ramping up for her second treatment, a pegylated version of what she'd taken before. This version only required one injection per week, but still lasted 48 weeks. This treatment would ultimately fail her, but we still had hope it might work. Once I turned 18, I was given the option to take that same treatment. But I wanted to wait for better timing with school because I'd seen the debilitating state my, the treatment had left my mom in. And as the magnet on my fridge reminded me, when you miss school, you miss out. So I waited until my senior year of college while in a long-distance relationship with an unsupportive fiancé. She wanted me to move out to Florida as she'd done nearly a year before. But my decision to treat while living with my family and having friends nearby turned out to be the right, the best choice I could have made. She was resistant and frustrated with my choice. But, and it was made because I knew what I would go through. I knew the risks. I also knew that when I graduated, I could lose my health insurance. So it wouldn't be covered. Otherwise, I got a full-time job. And even then, it would be a pre-existing condition. So it became more complex. And all of this was lost in our arguments. The stress was unreal, and the treatment I thought I'd prepared for was worse than I could have imagined. For three months, between my hormones pushing me to cry at doorknobs and the daily fatigue of having me miss work for the first time, I was in pieces. I walked with a cane because my legs were weak from the injection sites. I used a megaphone to speak to the kids I worked with because my voice would go. I tried my best to stay in a doomed relationship, which my treatment's failure would ultimately help me realize maybe we weren't right for each other. When the treatment failed, I was crushed. I didn't know what to do. My mom was equally devastated. Having hope that maybe this would work for me, maybe that her pain wasn't pointless. With the help of my kids in the program I worked at, of my friends that summer, of my family and supporting me, I found renewed purpose. I hit the gym, I reinvented myself. And after a few months of exploring my budding identity, I found some peace. Two years later, my doctor would suggest that I try the treatment again, only with a higher dosage. 
This was unnecessary treatment. It was a year before the first direct acting antivirals would come out. He was more interested in pushing the treatment because he was working for the company that made it. I learned of this years later, thanks to Open Payments, a searchable database payments of payments doctors receive. This was the beginning of my life with cirrhosis. Just as you'd imagine, the treatment was a bit worse than my first and equally devastating when my viral load stayed at 3 million. Viral load indicates the viral quantity, but not the severity of the disease. Below 500,000 is low, about 500,000 to 5 million is high, and about 5 million is very high. I was a wreck, and my behavior and choices reflected my depreciating attitude about life. But I put myself back into it again, hit the gym, reinvented myself again, and started running a before school after school organization. This is a photo of my ribavirin and civic pills from 2012. And one of my pegylated interferon needles. needles. That next year, my mom would go on to sing the single roughest treatment either of us would take. The regiment called for three months of a new DAA, direct acting antiviral, and then six months additional without it. It was dubbed the triple cocktail, an, Iraq, an, an ironic name, as this was for a liver disease. Interferon, ribavirin, and incivic would ravage my mom's body, requiring multiple units of blood and procrit to keep her alive. Ultimately, she would find that her hell had paid off and she was cured on her third treatment. Now, while the Affordable Care Act had recently been passed, its stance was shaky, and I was worried about my pre-existing condition preventing me from, from accessing insurance. And so, in the two months between when I turned 26 and my new tech support job's insurance kicking in, I opted to fork over half my paycheck for two months of COBRA. COBRA is a Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act insurance, and it can be purchased through the employer's health insurance ends um, uh, for an individual. Uh, although it's quite costly, since a person has to pay both the employee and the employer's share. Then I prepared for what I hoped would be my last treatment. I worked out for months prior, ate healthier, and tried to make the only factor that poorly affected my health the virus. My new friend at the time, who is now an RN, walked me through the rough of it. My friends helped me deal with the unusual requirements of the treatment. I was to eat 10 grams of fat with each pill, which is rather unheard of, which is rather hard, rather, when one has no appetite. So I'd stuff my face with crumb donuts while taking pills or a handful of nuts, depending upon which was available. The treatment was twice as hard as anything I'd remembered previous, as uh, anything I'd done previously. And it would bring me to the floor in exhaustion. I remember I used a good deal of FMLA that year. FMLA is Family Medical Leave Act. It's a uh, program. So much so that I'd missed out on multiple promotion opportunities. Family Medical Leave Act allows for up to 12 weeks of unconsecutive paid time off. Three months after I'd started my third treatment, I found myself in a hospital ER asking for a puke bucket. Not seconds later, however, missing the bucket altogether, but thankfully the floor would catch most of uh, the nearly two units of blood that projected itself from my mouth like a font. 
The next few moments were a bit hazy, but needless to say, they gave me an express pass to the bed. I skipped the whole ER line. They began the process to infuse blood and figure out where the internal bleeding was coming from. Had I not recognized the signs from a previous hospitalization, I'd probably have bled out even more en route to the hospital and likely died. There's a photo of me just getting some blood in 2012. This was the beginning of my symptoms regularly manifesting, as prior to the treatment, I'd received a MELD score indicating the need for liver transplant. A model for end-stage liver disease score, MELD, is given to patients awaiting liver transplant to show their imminent need for transplantation. The higher the score, the lower the chance of living the next six months, and the better the chance at receiving a transplant. I was creeping closer to 30, so my diagnosing doc's warning was ringing in my ears. This failure was hard to accept, but like the others, I reassessed my life. I decided to leave my new job in tech support and return to working with kids. Unfortunately, over the year I was building up my strength, my liver disease was making up for the treatments I'd been doing. My legs began to swell and retain fluid, an unusual manifestation of ascites. I've been diagnosed with every symptom that which comes with liver disease, with end-stage liver disease. Hepatic encephalopathy was the trickiest one, and one which helped me get relieved of the field I'd just re-entered. Without daily lactulose, I could get trapped in mental circles, mirroring dementia. My inability to do basic math proved challenging, but using an Excel spreadsheet, I felt I could compensate. My new job, however, came with new problems. The problem wasn't my health, the problem that I wasn't who she wanted to hire. So they told me I was the best candidate they'd seen and was welcome to reapply. However, the position was determined not to be a right fit. The entire time I was working, she'd use my health as an excuse to push me out, encouraging me to take sick days during my evaluation period, planning meetings on days where I had appointments, and knowing this would hurt my chances to become a permanent employee. After being let go, I was beside myself. This was the field I'd learned so well that they would ask me to come back as a consultant to help improve floundering sites. It was December of 2013, and I'd really realized my trajectory would have me disabled in no time. So we began the paperwork, and then, seemingly, out of nowhere, something extraordinary happened. A new treatment came out, one with 90% efficacy, Savaldi. For the first time in my life, I had real hope. I pumped up my advocacy efforts and began writing for HEPMAG at the invitation of Lucinda Porter after she'd read my heart-wrenching story submission and subsequently my blog I'd started during my third treatment. The treatment had to be off-label and combined with another DAA called Olysio. The combo was the first treatment to bring me to a zero viral load. And not only that, it had almost no side effects. It was life-changing. My family and friends were excited for me, but this isn't it. This isn't the good part. It's not even close. It was a high moment where my family and friends enjoyed a month and a half of knowing I would live beyond 30 and maybe have a more typical life after I hit SVR 12. These treatments all have a waiting period for when one can be cured. 
because it takes time to know the treatment has been affected, the date is called sustained viral response at 12 weeks or SVR 12. I never hit SVR 12. In fact, not six weeks later, I was hospitalized for colostrum difficile colitis, C. diff. The infection I'd acquired at a diner had given my remaining hep C the chance it needed and my jaundice was so bad. My eyes were golden yellow and I'd been bumped up the transplant list. I spent the week at the hospital wondering when I, when and how I would leave. The idea of a transplant scared the hell out of me, even though I knew ultimately it would save my life. Here's a photo of me chilling with friends. Two days in, he explained my hepsi had returned. I wasn't allowed to leave my room alone, but thankfully I had lots of friends and family come visit. Even an old coworker I hadn't seen in almost two years had heard about it and stopped by. Also, coming into the hospital in C. diff was awful, but as I was spending a week there, at least I got my own room. I also wanted to confuse the CNAs, so... I had everyone bring in stuffed animals and congrats on your baby things because humor is excellent in medicine. Upon discharge, I was informed of a new treatment and was slaughtered to take it by the end of the month. In November, it had a higher success rate than my previous treatment at 98%. Harvoni also required 24 weeks due to the extent of damage done to my liver. But it, was just as but it was just as successful as the prior treatment. By six weeks, I'd hit zero. I'd maintained it up until May. And then as we prepped for the annual liver, liver, liver life walk, I received the news that my last week on treatment, the virus had rebounded and the treatment failed again. My hand holding Harvoni pill. Picture. The walk was challenging and my body started to have trouble dealing with the symptoms. Even with the medication, the cascading failures put me into a deep depression, and my girlfriend at the time felt equally depressed. Months afterward, our state degraded to an untenable point. The breakup, though, was fuel for change. Sometimes it takes a kick in the head to see a different perspective, to push someone through a funk. I redoubled my efforts, created a routine to help manage, to main, help me maintain my strength and fortitude and told all of my friends to help me watch for my, for my hepatic encephalopathy symptoms, to tell me when I should take lactulose to help ease it. I jumped back into life and began searching to find out exactly why the treatments failed and to see if any treatments could match my specific situation. I found the particular mutations and why my treatments didn't work. So I proposed a combination of two treatments combining Zepatir with Harvoni. My doc took it under advisement. But before anything could happen, my liver hit the point of no return. As my, transplant as my transplant doc described it best, my liver was an old shoe, and it needed to be replaced before I could go on for another treatment. My three-year wait for transplant had, so far, gone without a call for a full, healthy liver. So I knew it would be a challenge going forward. To keep my mental faculties and physical state intact, I followed a friend to dance class. There, I found the perfect outlet to work out, to work around the temporary memory loss caused by HE by introducing muscle memory to my memory castle techniques for memorization. Dance was at my own pace. 
I kept a bag of intentionally chosen mixed nuts. The combo helps balance my electrolytes, which would constantly be a wreck because my body would purge the retaining fluid or expelling fluid from diuretics. Dance gave me a lot of my world back. But as my jaundice became impossible to hide, sunglasses at night were harder to pull off. I started working with a newly formed coalition of nonprofits called CalHEP and helped them pass a pilot program by speaking to the assembly subcommittee. I was committed to ensuring that no one else go through the hell of end-stage liver disease because it was unnecessary if they can get treatment. At the time, there were restrictions to access so that you needed to be F3, which is when permanent liver damage begins to start treatment. F3 is the third tier of liver disease in the fibrosis scale. F4 is usually when MELD begins. So while the F3 treatment is no longer the case in California, other states like Texas, at the time of this article's writing, December 2020, still have these heinous restrictions. As an advocate, I am dedicate, I, I dedicated myself to helping in the fight to the best of my ability. But in September, I began a series of monthly hospital visits, which would eventually lead to my death or maybe a transplant. And everyone around me knew it. It was an intense period of time in my life. And it also happened to be October 2016. Waiting for a routine endoscopy in 2016. So everything was becoming politically charged and tribalism was making the fight for healthcare even harder. In September of 2016, I moved along with my friends from the apartment we'd lived in for three years to a, to, into a four bedroom house. It was nice. And I'm thankful that my friends were able to do this with me, especially in the condition I was in. But in my shape, setting up for the move was hard. And during the process, I passed out, explaining, no, no, I, I just need a double-double from in and out. It's, it's fine. What I didn't realize is that the craving had come from a lack of sodium in my body. In addition to that, I happened to be hypocalcemic. So when I arrived at the hospital, they quickly assessed the situation and were more surprised that I wasn't in a coma based on how low my sodium was. I spent the week in the hospital recovering while my friends packed up my remaining things and moved me into the house. When I got home, I started to organize my things and pack for a trip. My mom had decided that we should go on a cruise ship to Mexico. So she invited me and even paid for a friend to come along. I understood why she was doing this. She wanted some good last memories if, that sh if things should come to that. And she wanted to me to have some enjoyment in this rather literal hell. That's not in keeping with the buzzard's luck I seem to have. One day of forgetting diuretics. Picture. The trip was made more challenging by an odd bit of advice. Counter to literally every other doctor I've had, the attending doctor during my last trip to the hospital told me that to beat hepatic encephalopathy, I should really be consuming less protein and more salt. Just, just, just so we don't spread this around. That is terrible advice. It is the exact opposite of what should be done. Low salt, high protein is correct. But the thing is, when you have hepatic encephalopathy, memory is a tricky and confusing thing. 
So I followed his advice, luckily for only for a few weeks. But unfortunately, it included this trip. And needless to say, I looked straight up pregnant. My ascites were such that my stomach actually started to hurt on its own. So I spent most of the trip vomiting and walking in circles to avoid leg cramps. Because I didn't pack my mixed nuts combo. When we returned from the trip, I found myself in so much pain I couldn't bend down to put on socks. The trip to the hospital had become so routine I prepped my doc en route and told her what was going on. She confirmed what I'd suspected. I'd need a peritoneal tap. A peritoneal tap is typically a needle in the abdomen which drains excess fluid. Thankfully, they were ready for my arrival and they rushed me into triage and started work right there and were concerned. The reason for the concern was that the peritoneal fluid can become septic and if left for too long, the pain can be indicative of just that, sepsis. My heart rate was such that the only pain that I knew that I could take was, was ketamine. The only thing I could take from my pain was ketamine. As they drained 12 pounds of fluid from me and placed an internal jugular port in my neck to administer the antibiotics in an attempt to knock out my, my sepsis, I was lucky that within 18 hours, the antibiotics were working and I could slowly get better. This event had also raised my MELD score from 26 to 35. I remember sharing my journey with every doctor who came in, explaining that should I live, I would get my master's in public health so that I might do more for my community. I shared my journey for two reasons. To remind myself of the purpose and to curb stigma. My higher meld meant that it was more likely that I could get a transplant, but I would wait and be denied not once, but three potential transplants while the election day would frustrate my television set in the background. My recovery from sepsis. Picture. Going home with the pick line in, I didn't know how long I'd have left. I felt better, but I knew that it was relative. A peripherally inserted central catheter or pick line is a soft tube that goes into the left arm allowing drugs to more easily be administered to the heart. I generally accepted and come to terms with my death should it come to that. I dug hard into my routine and got back to focusing on surviving and waiting. I had just over eight viable liver offers at this point, and each time renewed life was given to another person higher on the list than I. And when you get to where I had being called in for a liver offer is just a regular occurrence. Actually being the recipient, however, is quite rare. The reason this happens is to make sure that the liver goes on to the person of most need, where the liver, where the liver and recipient will have the highest chance of survivability. They prep the top few contenders for transplant for every newly available liver. About three weeks later, on December 3rd, 2016, I received the call for my transplant. That day is one of the most vivid blurs because only shortly after I arrived and cleaned up, I was prepped 
for transplant and put under. Five hours later, I was out. Everything had gone right. Within two days, I was farting. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, I get it. It doesn't sound impressive, okay? But it's the first step in knowing everything is hooked up and working properly. Me with my liver transplant surgeon and my resulting scar picture. Within three days, I was out of the hospital and kind of walking. I had to do a rollout method to get out of bed because, well, my abs were cut in half. But one adjusts. I was back on the elliptical within the week and was ready to get back into life. My friends and family all wanted to visit, but everyone had to wear masks because my fragile, my frail immune state. And no one who wants and no one who was sick could come over. Once ready, I returned home and prepped for the next step in my recovery treatment again. Because if this treatment didn't work, the virus would infect my new liver and I would be reliving the last three years of my life as my liver slowly failed. But thankfully, my doc expanded on what I already suggested a year earlier, prescribing me 12 weeks of Zepatir, Savoldi, and Ribavirin, an off-label treatment designed to target my specific variant of HCV. It was approved by insurance. Every previous medication had been denied and required multiple appeals to push through, but this one was on Medicare. The trio of meds, which was my sixth treatment for HCV. Picture. It too had its bumps as insurance goes. I didn't zero out until eight weeks, and my team was concerned that I might not reach SVR 24 because Four weeks isn't a lot of time to stay zero viral load while on treatment when you have the history I do. After weeks of stressing, calling lawyers' offices, and preparing for a large lawsuit should it need be done, I was relieved to get the SVR-12. I wasn't quite cured, but it was a good sign. Then, 18 years after my initial diagnosis, I was cured of hepatitis C. In early September of 2017, I reached SVR 24. Pictures. The American Liver Foundation event, I was their liver champion in 2017. The Help for Hep Crew training in 2018. Advocating for End the Epidemics in 2019. Pictures. End. In 2017, I was already writing for HepatitisC.net, working with CalHep, the American Liver Foundation, and HepMag. But I needed to do more. In 2018, I started working with Help for Hep as a peer counselor. I stepped up at HepatitisC.net as a moderator. I stepped up my volunteering, speaking with American Liver Foundation and Life Sharing, doing TV interviews to promote organ donation, assisting CalHep in attempting to expand the pilot program I'd help, I'd help promote in 2016. And at the close of 2018, I was offered to be the chair of the consumer committee at Eliminate Hep C San Diego in 2019. I advocated within the epidemics and helped secure funding for HCV, HIV, and STD programs in California. I also started with a brand new nonprofit. Having been a patient advocate and part of NoHep 2030 since it started, I knew that the goal of this is nearly impossible given our current prescription drug and healthcare system. This is why I started working for the new, new nonprofit Open Biopharma Research and Training Institute. I realized that the prescription drug marketplace has many roles that increase prices. 
And one of those holes are as many holes that increase prices. And one of those holes is manufacturing training. There are so, as there are drug shortages and lost development costs. So in an attempt to smooth that process, I jumped at the chance to open, to join open biopharma as the director of education and outreach pictures, the San Diego American Liver Life Walk in 2019, leading a tour of the soft opening in December 2019 at Open Biopharma. While preparing the nonprofit's launch, I began my master's in public health program on my third attempted application. I dove right in, researching and doing my first literature review on young people with hepatitis C. That literature review helped me craft an article that informed and encouraged others to comment on the new CDC recommendations for hepatitis C testing. Every aspect of the new recommendations was adopted, and additional guidance reflected the recommendations in my article. Additionally, NHEPC San Diego was officially kicked off in a unanimous vote by the San Diego County. It was terrific seeing advocacy work pay off. But my thesis working with HCV had been muted by the arrival of COVID-19. The project I'd intended on working with could no longer happen. So I dove into the research on COVID-19 and have begun a systematic literature review as I'm in my final semester of, master's, of my master's in public health program. Over the summer, I helped design prom health promotional material explaining the difference between SARS-CoV-2 antibody tests Splitting my advocacy focus between COVID-19 and hepatitis C has been necessary. Those who are newly infected with COVID-19 and COVID long haulers are not alone in their plight. And those of us in the HCV and HIV AIDS communities who understand their fight have stepped up as well. Like with covidhealth.com, where are we've already shown that when we fight to end multiple epidemics, we can sink those efforts I look forward to graduating with my MPH in 2021 and publishing my journey with the help of my friends and family as a book in 2022. Picture, San Diego County unanimously moving forward with eliminated Hep C San Diego in March 2020. Each year, I plan on updating my story to share my journey, to share as my journey continues. If anything, I hope my story inspires you to help someone close to you who has Hep C who may not understand the potential for their plight or to help yourself remind you that there is so much more potential than you know. We are all worthy of treatment, care, and love. The more we share our stories, the more we can help erase stigma. Uh, TLDR, when it comes to hep C, get tested, get treated, get cured. Hepatitis, see you later. Until next year.